we've long needed a, a new uh, way um, to address people's concerns and our taboos about discussing end-of-life care have prevented us from getting there. That's Ann Newman. She's the author of The Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America. She's written for Harper's Magazine, New York Times, Virginia Quarterly Review, and others, and she's currently at work on a book about grief and travel. When I initially approached Anne to talk about end-of-life care, hospice movements, and the work that she's done as a hospice volunteer, as a journalist who's covered death and dying, I didn't want to make it COVID-19-centric. But COVID-19 has pushed the moment to its crisis. I also talked to um, nursing home workers, the CNAs who uh, have their caseloads in nursing homes, and are, they're, they're seeing an unprecedented, like, um, seriously horrifying number of deaths. Today on Dead to Me, we talk about COVID-19, end-of-life care, living and dying in the U.S. Anne has written recently about end-of-life decisions that are being made virtually. It's just a little piece that, that is now at Vox uh, that looks at what it's like to um, notarize or have witnesses in this moment where we can't be in the same room with each other and different lawyers telling me what they thought of the viability of those documents notarized via um, video. And then what documents you could do now, and um, and then of course with the with the stringent warning that all of this should be um, uh, readdressed in the future when this is over and we can be in person again. So I told her about how my husband and I had to have a conversation about basic care that we wanted in the event that one of us got sick with COVID nineteen in New York City at its peak when. Going into the hospital could often mean you wouldn't come out. And that conversation was difficult. So Anne and I talked about it. I think it's an important conversation to have. It's a, vi it's a vital conversation to have, and more people should be having this conversation at mm -hmm. this very moment. And in fact, they are, right? Yeah. Um, pe people all over the country, um, I mean, um, uh, elder care lawyers are about as busy as... Um, as, uh, you know, funeral directors right now, right, so, right. Um, or ER doctors, um, it's anyone who um, uh, is adjacent to, you know, a death and dying conversation is uh, being inundated with work. It's not just elder care, right? We're not, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, 49. Um, and so, <laughs> but I mean, but to your point, it obviously is, would be um, a heavier load on the elder care community. But when we were seeing people that are my age, younger, who might be facing these kind of thoughts uh, amid a pandemic, you know, what? Right. I just hope that that conversation continues beyond this. Right. Um, so we'll and I wish, that, um, I wish that points of contact for individuals um, say, I don't know, your doctor or um, an ER visit. Um, we've seen, you know, pilot programs where um, ER visits prompted a conversation with a patient, um, particularly, I think, patients over, you know, over the age of 50 or 60 mm -hmm. about what their end of life uh, decisions are, mm -hmm. but um, but we haven't seen that in a national way, and it's unfortunate because 
those decisions, those conversations can change lives. They can keep families together. They, um, they can prevent, uh, uh, you know, uh, unqualified amounts of pain and suffering. Um, so, I mean, we've long needed a, a new uh, way um, to address people's concerns and our taboos about discussing end-of-life care have prevented us from getting there. Um, as well as, I, I mean, I I place a lot of blame on the medical industry. We taught doctors um, how to have end-of-life discussions with patients, um, even how to treat pain, you yeah. know, but as it is, it's quite possible to get through, you know, a lot of your training and never see a dying person. And so um, the ethos of cure, 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 um, is taken over medicine so much so that, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, uh, with the advent of uh, respirators and defibrillators and other medical um, advancements, uh, people looked at cases like Karen Ann Quinlan or Nancy Cruzan or Terry Schiavo and said, oh, shit, um, we need to do something, and hence the Right to Die movement, which aimed to address kind of the overreach of medicine uh, and uh, to reclaim death and dying, um, that highly professionalized, institutionalized um, endeavor. Um, and the other route, if we want to think about it, the Right to Die movement um, kind, of, kind of has multiple prongs. We see all these legal documents like advanced directives and... Um, and uh, living wills and pulsed and most forms as they exist in various states. Um, and again, all those forms are state-specific. So this is done in a grassroots way, um, and elder law has been forged in a, in, um, at the state level. Um, but then this other avenue um, that came out of those medical advancements and reaction to those medical advancements in the 60s and 70s um, are... Um, the hospice movement, which has been really fantastic. Um, the first hospice opened up here in the U.S. Um, in uh, roughly 74. And um, and so ever since then, um, we you know, about half of those who die in the United States prior to this um, coronavirus, of course, um, about half of those who died in the United States died in hospice. Um, but hospice has a, a lot of prejudices built into it like every system in the country um and well, um, so let's talk about that for one minute i'm, I'm interested to, to hear your definition of the prejudices built within the hospice system the way that we approach death and dying, we all know, is very cultural. However you want to define those subcultures within the United States, um, however you want to break them out according to nationality or race or religion, um, socioeconomic status, all of those things, of course, determine the nature and culture of local hospice programs. Um, and sadly, uh, the um, wonderful um, program allows people with six months or less to live to be admitted, but when you look at the mean stay of those um, in hospice across the country, it's only about seven days. Right. And so people are getting to hospice far too late, yes. um, and they're not having, um, doctors aren't having conversations with them, and probably one of the saddest things is when you go to an in-hospital hospice uh, program, 
um, like the one that um, I did my volunteering in, and you see that, um, you know, 18 beds, and they're full with people on respirators and defibrillators who had come out of other parts of the hospital, and someone just lacked the guts to have a conversation with that family about the fact that their loved one was indeed dying. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it's, it's pretty sad to see. Conversations need language and terminology. So I wanted to take a step back here and just get some grounding from Anne about what the terms mean. Aid in dying, mercy killings, assisted suicide, end-of-life care, death with dignity. So I asked Anne to give me some language that we can try to use when we talk about end-of-life care. End of life is a period of active dying, and end of life care is really seeing to the needs of people who are in that phase of life, emphasizing on the life part, right? They're still alive, and and they still deserve rights and the ability to make their medical decisions and all of those patient, um, patient rights that exist. The death with dignity term is the name of the organization out in Washington, um, but it's also not a bad goal for everybody. The thing is that the word dignity is one of those slippery words that we can project whatever we want to onto it. We kind of have a sense of what it is, but... um, but we don't really know. It's kind of different for every person, what is dignified and what is not. Um, so, for instance, the Catholic Church will dignity quite a bit, but the Catholic Church is very much opposed to, say, the legalization of aid and dying. Right. Um, and, um, and yet that term, dignity, is used by many advocates who promote legal aid and dying. That term's been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um Euthanasia simply means a good death, and the term has um, been around forever. It's been used in other eras, um, in Europe, for instance, to describe the T4 experiments that were perpetrated by Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. Um, But um, strangely and ironically, it's now the term that's used in Europe for legal aid in dying in the countries where it's legal. Assisted suicide is a complex term, and it's one that um, that I've been very much interested in um, because um, assisted suicide has been used by advocates for legal aid in dying, meaning my use of aid in dying um, because um, I support legal aid in dying um, either for myself or others, and I've written about it quite a bit. Um, Uh, So that's my default. But many people use the term assisted suicide um, because they have a derogatory view of the legal act of aid in dying and that suicide um, taint is um, one that they'd like to keep in their language when they discuss legal aid in dying. Yes. Um, And then alternately, uh, um, assisted suicide is um, a uh, it's also the name of statutes that exist in about 34 states around the country that prevents an individual from assisting someone else's suicide. If you know someone who has mental health issues um, or is severely depressed and suicidal and you hand them a gun, 
it is possible to arrest you and charge you with assisting a suicide. And so that term has so many fascinating facets. And yet, back in the day, Derek Humphrey, for instance, would use it when he was uh, an early advocate, the final exit author. He came out of the Hemlock Society in those days and did his own thing. Um, Really complex character who wasn't much into mincing words for the sake of favorability, very much unlike today's Compassionate Choices, the largest aid and dying organization in the country, which is quite political and that doesn't do the hands-on work anymore um, and and only did for a little while, but is very much committed in um, pursuing these laws across the country. And that shows how language about end-of-life care can be used or, in some cases, misuse. It can be used as a, a sort of sword or, or a shield in a way. Um, and I think it's important to just understand the terminology. So that that's very helpful, at least for me, because yeah. it's, there, there's so many terms, you know, it's, it's, it's referred to in so many different ways. I, I remember when I first started writing about this stuff, Compassion Choices communications person would call me anytime I wrote a piece if I used the term assisted suicide. And in my naivete, I wasn't really bothered by the term assisted suicide. Um, It took learning the history and um, present uses and controversies around the term for me to acknowledge, yes, indeed, I want to be saying aid in dying and um and i made my peace with that it took me a little bit to understand why they were so sensitive to it but i i think they're right in the sense that um the words that we use have an extraordinary power particularly around these issues we know that with abortion for instance well yes Um, exactly Mm -hmm. and um abortion is a, a fabulous corollary when we want to think about individual rights and religion and and politics in the u.s you and I had a, so this kind of dovetails into the idea of dignity and that's a slippery word because when we were talking yesterday, um, death is not the great equalizer. Um, and to me, when I hear being able to die with dignity, that's, that's a privilege. This idea that there is a dignified death that's available to everyone is a false one, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there are, what, um, 18 or or, um, 28 to 30 million individuals in the country who don't have health care. And that means that they therefore don't have early detection of diseases. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, They've got incredible underlying conditions, their lives will just be shorter. Their life expectancy is not the same as others. Um, and so those despair, you know, they live in, they live in areas where, um, contamination is higher. Um, they are, um, black and they go into the hospital and doctors don't treat them with equality and don't believe them about pain. We know that in so many studies, um, the understanding of women's pain is just um, not conceived and, and not addressed by doctors in the same way that it is 
um, in men. And so all of these prejudices are built into the science of medicine Mm -hmm. and the care of medicine. And so absolutely, um, people die in, in varying ways. And much of that is based on shameful demographics that have historically been used, uh, um, segments of the population with discrimination. And so um, when you look at, say, hospice use, those factors come into play. When you look at use of aid in dying, uh, very much so the demographics will tell you, because the law in Washington required that data be tracked. We now have something like 12 years of data So we know who's using it and um, that it has a very clear uh, racial uh, disparity. We know that um, people are are not getting what they need from healthcare, And I guess I guess I got to that um, from thinking about dignity. Right. What does it mean to to die with dignity? Why are those laws named death with dignity? Well, in, in those specific cases, in those laws, it means having six months or less to live. Um, being mentally competent in some states, saying that you would like a lethal prescription in both writing and verbally, um, a waiting period is required by some laws. Um, and um, if you do have, if there are questions about your mental competence, um, you need to see a psychiatrist in some cases. Um, and so there are many hoops. It's very hard to get all that together and because of those complications it requires particular resources yeah um but also just the word dignity uh it can to, to, to die with dignity outside of the aid and dying law outside of the states what does that mean mm. and um i think everyone has their own conception of what dignity means for them um and so um, what I always remind us is that to die with dignity means to means for an individual to die according to their own intentions. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you want? Mm-hmm. Um, do you want pain medication? Um, if you are in pain, do you want to be conscious or unconscious? Do you want your family to be with you? Some people really don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, there's a phenomenon among hospice nurses who will tell you that patients die when their loved ones leave the room. Um, so, uh, yeah, I was just going to say that my random sampling of, um, two of my friends whose fathers have died, they died immediately after the last child had left the room. Yeah. I mean, you know, immediately within, within five minutes. So, you know, but yeah, there, there, there is something, there's something very powerful to that. That can be hard to navigate when you're going through like, oh, I wasn't there. Oh, I, I, you know, well, you know, people are going to check out, at least in my experience, on their own terms. Um, And we have precious little to do with it, except in how we can help facilitate as family members their wishes. That's all. But I do think that in the broader sense, systemically, we have an awful lot to do with how people die mm-hmm. how they, how people check out mm-hmm. um and because of of different cultural taboos and um uh and not identifying prejudices uh we've done a pretty terrible job of putting together systems that allow people to articulate what they want when they are dying and making sure that they happen um we do it in some cases um we do it really well we, um you know depending on particular diagnoses but in other instances, we're terrible. 
So give me an example of one terrible instance versus one good instance, because again, I have no point of reference because I had a good instance, I think. Well, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and I think a bad instance would be an individual with underlying conditions who has no paid time off, perhaps a person of color who is working a service job so they don't have the opportunity to stay home, who ends up going and being exposed to hundreds of people a day, say, checking out groceries, um, and because of diabetes and other um, uh, pre-existing conditions, um, contracts COVID, goes to work for a few days um, until they can't stand the, uh, the, um, the symptoms any longer, um, and they are then at home, um, say, with their spouse and children and mother, because we know that people with low income, um, minority groups, um, tend to live in multi-generational households, um, and then that individual has heard the stories about hospitals in New York City or in Brooklyn, or that person doesn't have health insurance, isn't afraid that their family is going to have to pay for an ambulance, mm-hmm. and that money just isn't in it's not uh, in existence right now if that person's not working. Um, and so feels awful for a few weeks and then starts to feel a little better, just a glimmer. Um, the fever uh, resides and, say, the coughing is more subdued. And, um, and 24 hours later, they start experiencing severe respiratory problems. Again, they're still afraid to go to the hospital, and they end up dying in their bed next to their partner. That's not good. That is not how we want this to go down. That is um, the failure of the richest country in the world to address the medical needs and basically just the social um, human decency um, in a society. We have we have failed and we have failed utterly. Um, and that's what the death count tells us every day. Obviously, we know that these things have existed. Right. We know. Well, I mean, most people that you and I maybe know, know that there's disparities, but this is this is forcing it into um, into the open. And I think that, you know, there is to me, there's nothing more basic um, and more visceral and more urgent than than um, dying. And and that is, you know, that is the ultimate that that's it. That's the end. Well, I would I would put it a different way, right? Like, there's nothing more urgent than um, than quality of life, sure. right? And um, and and um, death, an easy death is what comes when you have quality of life, um, because we want to prevent the pain and suffering of individuals. We uh, we we want to serve individuals as best they need as they are dying, um, and that is paying attention to how they live. And we don't do that very well. That brings me to, you had mentioned there are now hospices that are COVID specific. Did I hear I, you say that correctly? Um, I, I believe like as, uh, as nursing homes are um, doing, um, I believe hospices are as well where they have wings that are just COVID patients, but it's not a national policy. It's simply something that directors and and medical staff found to be effective in various facilities. Not all hospices 
are operating right now. I imagine they've got some patients. There's probably not an intake of a lot of patients because of fear. But I did speak to MJHS, uh, which is hospice here in New York, based out of Beth Israel, and they are taking COVID patients. Um, and I talked to a nurse who had just been with a, a, a with a family as their loved one died. Um, that afternoon, I think at 4 p.m., she said, and, and she and I spoke that evening. Um, but she is managing teams of nurses, and, you know, of course, hospice has a social worker and a chaplain and um, interpreters if necessary, and a whole team of people in order to holistically treat a dying experience, not just the family and the patient's pain, but um, it, kind of the mental health of the caretakers and these things. And um, her teams were going out and, and, um, and interfacing with families uh, of COVID patients still. And I was really, really fucking impressed. But it also means that our understanding of frontline worker is atomized, right? It's mm-hmm. not just people in hospitals. We see, we see hospitals and I have a little... I have a little bone to pick when the media really only talks to doctors um, because it's nurses that, you know, get paid less, that have incredible expertise, who know patients really well, and um, and I think in many ways we're biased. But also our other frontline workers are the home health aides in, in hospitals uh, or who come through agencies and work with a patient, whether they're in a nursing home or uh, at their own home. These frontline workers are the hospice you know, social workers or, or hospice caregivers, as well as uh, funeral directors, are also frontline workers. Um, we have no idea how this disease works, really. We're mm-hmm. still just learning so much about it. We're, we don't know if, it, if a corpse is contagious. Everyone who's dealing with COVID on a day-to-day basis uh, are pretty pretty brave to be doing what they're doing, especially because they don't have what they need to right. do their job. You know, I'm glad you bring up the other frontline workers. I spoke with my friend who's a registered nurse, but also a medical um, examination investigator. And so she's certified uh-huh. to go into homes um, in, in hospital and out of hospital um or on scene. And so the thing is, is that she has had to go out to death scenes in homes and there are no protocols in place necessarily on this, even on the state level. But, but, but that's just, that's another frontline worker that we don't think about because she's like, you know, we don't know what we don't know. And it, we, we have no idea when we go into a scene what's going to, what we're going to encounter. And then they don't even know if there's a protocol to test people um, for COVID after they die. Right. It's not being done. Um, I mean, the way I just heard a report out of Europe where most European countries are now using deaths on top of usual deaths. So they're taking um, an average of prior year's death numbers for Mm -hmm. for the season because, you know, deaths are often seasonal. Um, And and they're saying our death count is what is uh, above and beyond that. Um, And it's simply because they didn't do enough testing. And we're in um, an even more accelerated position Mm -hmm. where, um, you know, I talked to one funeral director who is going into um, 
uh, homes and the death certificate will say respiratory failure or pneumonia. And they're just treating all cases right now like COVID. Mm-hmm. But I also, I also talked to um, nursing home workers, you know, the, the CNAs who um, uh, have their caseloads in nursing homes and, um, and you know, we'll, are, they're, they're seeing an unprecedented, like, um, a, a seriously horrifying number of deaths. And um, and there's no testing going on there. And if, they're, if those individuals are even tested themselves, it's because they've gone to their private doctor, not because their place of employment is testing them. So, so we know that the death numbers are absolutely skewed and um, that no one's tracking that, which is hugely political, right? This whole, the whole yes. lack of tests is political. The whole lack of PPE is political. This is a government that failed to put those contingencies, absolutely necessary resources in place. And so individuals are now um, dying because of it. Let me talk about Iowa again one moment, because this is, again, my only point of reference, the Iowa River Hospice in Marshalltown, which is the private nonprofit um, hospice that helped us with my dad and enabled us and gave us the tools um, such as they were to to keep dad at home, which I know is, uh, I'm just so grateful and it's such a luxury. Not a lot of people can get to do that. But the Iowa hospice home isn't accepting any um, visitors right now. To your point, they're probably not taking on any additional people. However, I don't know that for sure. Um, but what happens to those people when we can't have any visitors? So it's it's very clear. It's like we will not be taking any visitors to residents or to staff. It says it's a federal policy. Do you know of any federal policy governing visitations during a pandemic in hospice care homes? I don't. Um, and I haven't looked at the guidance, to be honest. I've been focused on nursing homes lately, and there is a national policy of no visitation in in uh, nursing homes, and I think it's the right thing to do. Um, if you look at how damaging isolation is to elders, it has a physical, um, it's a physical detriment. It's a health problem to be old and alone. And we know that um, uh, men lose their spouses and they have a 30% higher mortality rate. Um, There are studies that say loneliness is just as um, detrimental to health as smoking and obesity. But you're not dead, you're lonely. And people die when COVID comes into a facility. And so we have some tools that we can employ, um, but letting family members in to see elders, I think, is not the right decision at this moment. Um, in a hospice situation or in a nursing in, home? In a nursing home. Yeah. And by extension, I would have to say hospice as well. I mean, it depends on the scenario, right? If a person is already at home, um, COVID came into the home, I mean, first of all, we know that most patients in hospice are dying of other underlying diseases, not COVID, 
right? Yep. Because if, you, if you've got COVID, um, you've only got a couple of weeks, it comes on very quickly, and there's no time to enroll in hospice. It just doesn't happen. Right. Um, I, I mean, it, it can happen, um, but it, for the most part, it's just not happening. Mm-hmm. And so any individual who happens to be in hospice right now is dying from other underlying conditions, whether it's cancer, which is the predominant hospice disease, hospice really um, was formed around those who were dying of cancer. But that said, like if, if that family member is at home and contracts COVID, we're seeing hospice workers who are going from home to home to facility and then to their own homes and their families. And any kind of contact whatsoever at the moment is risky, which is why we're all in isolation. I do think that allowing family members to visit dying patients in hospitals or in a hospital, an in-hospital hospice facility is a risk. I think medical staff have acquired the skills to help keep family members in touch with their dying loved ones. Um, And also 80% of people um, don't show any symptoms. Those who contract COVID and have symptoms who end up in ICUs, the hope is that they will live. And so their death may not be immediate, but it's it's still a, a hopefully a preventable death. So family not getting to see them becomes a crisis in those hours before death. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes, like I it's do. not it's not like you're watching this disease come on over a long period of time and have time to prepare. You know, when we talk about a good death, it's, um, you know, the person is where they want to be, they have the medical resources they want, they have the people around them that they want, and they have knowledge that what is coming is death. And the patients right now dying of COVID just really don't have that. They're hoping to live. And I mean, you and I could go into ventilators and their effectiveness and what we've learned. So yeah, uh, mm-hmm. what we've learned over the past several weeks. Yeah. But but to come back to your question, are we seeing health care facilities, namely hospitals, nursing homes, and maybe even um, in certain circumstances, hospice facilities, um, exercise an abundance of caution and prevent families from seeing their loved one before death. I don't think it's an abundance of caution. I think that the objective is to save lives. That objective is real and vital. What we need to do is find another way to connect dying family members with their loved one. And nothing will satisfy families losing, um, you know, their mother or father or or grandparents. Um, nothing will satisfy them other than being in the same room. But this is a crisis. This is a plague pandemic, uh, unlike anything we will ever see in our lifetimes. And the caution makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. We need to save lives. And we don't just mean the lives of the family members who are going into that facility. Um, but we mean, you know, the lives of the workers as well, the oh. lives of the other patients in there. So it's not just, and then, and then let's say family members do go in to see their loved one. It's a facility where there are COVID patients. Let's say it's a hospital. They, um, contract COVID, they carry it around for a week. 
not only in their home, but in their community, in their grocery store. We're not just talking that family being exposed. We're talking about the exponential spread of this disease and becoming vectors. So it's imperative that we protect lives in every way we can. And the tragedy of that is that it affects the families of those who are dying. It draws even a sharper relief in my mind about how how we treat the dying, families of the dying, when we have to practice an abundance of caution and not visit, say, our relatives, our loved ones in hospice homes, but we can go get a piece of pizza from the deli at Walmart just around the corner. So to me, that draws very sharp relief in what our our priorities are as a uh, society. But there's a big difference. I mean, there are a whole bunch of issues um, that surround the crisis of public health at the moment. Yes. Not only all those underlying conditions that you and I discussed, but then also the lack of information about this disease. On top of the uh, um, grotesque misinformation and poor example setting by our legislators and our president and other people in power, namely the tech giants and, you know, the asshole corporations who are not treating this with the seriousness because they have their own profit, their own pockets are more important than the lives of your neighbors and loved ones who are still working in their factory. Mm-hmm. So there are a whole host of issues that are, um, that are affecting individual action. So we can criticize the folks who are out there buying pizza pizza, or walking down the street without a mask or standing too close around the construction site. But the leadership, the open information, the conversation about what's taking place, even the media, which is just showing hospitals, um, but also not doing a really good job of explaining the crisis. So this is where I chose to break because we were rising to a crescendo over the political situation. And I wanted to save that for sort of a more concentrated part two that will be shorter, but very much focused on the failure of the administration, the failure of any sort of leadership in this country, placing profit over people and how that is playing out in front of our eyes. So that is going to be in part two. But I wanted to kind of round out this first part with palliative care and get it back to how we treat our loved ones who are dying in their final days. Anne has done some great work around this and bringing her own personal experience to bear when she was a hospice volunteer. So yeah, part two is going to be a whole bunch of politics and healthcare. And for me, it's all one and the same. Anyway, let's wrap this baby up with little palliative care, shall we? All right, listen, I want to talk to you for five minutes or three minutes about your favorite topic. Well, one of your favorites, which is um, uh, uh, drugs for pain relief. Just like, but, but because I think that it's, mis- again, all of this is just based on my personal experience is that people don't understand necessarily or haven't understood that palliative care can happen b- well before um, hospice care 
begins. And palliative care can mean a lot of things, but in, in, in end of life care, where do you see palliative care taking care of pain in that spectrum and how much earlier should it be started? Because to your point, it's like, we're getting to the point where it's like people get into hospice and they stay there for seven days and that's it. And it really needs to come earlier. Right. Um, well, palliative care is for anybody, right? You break your knee yep. um, and you've got severe pain. Um, you need palliative care because palliative care is is literally the um, the study of pain alleviation. I mean, that's what the, the medical specialty exists for. And it's a relatively new specialty. It's only been around for, I don't know, what are we going on, two decades now? Um, uh, sadly, because medicine just kind of stopped paying attention to pain. You know, they were all into the cure. We're going to cure cancer. We're going to cure XYZ. But they weren't focusing on you know, holistic, they weren't looking at the body and, and, and the body in pain. Um, so palliative care comes out of that need. Um, oftentimes, um, hospice and palliative care um, have been very close um, uh, together. And so when you have knee surgery and you need palliative care and someone says palliative care, some people blanch because they think, mm -hmm. Oh wait, I'm not terminal. Am I? Yeah. So there are these, there's these um, misnomer misunderstandings of the special medical specialty, but they are really good at understanding how bodies die. Um, and it is a complex process, um, with its own, um, symptoms and factors and, um, and palliative care experts, um, know how to manage pain relief in those moments. And some drugs work and some drugs don't, um, depending on the underlying conditions or the individual, um, patient's, uh, physiology or, um, or history, um, and I had a hospice patient that I write about in The Good Death about um, he was in a, an all HIV facility on the Lower East Side. And um, I went in one day and he was doubled up in pain. Mm -hmm. And I had never understood that term. Um, and in fact, just saying doubled up, I see him now. Um, and um, I went to get the nurse and I waited and I waited. And I, he was on hospice, so he was actively dying. Um, I was told by my, my program not to say hospice in front of him because I think it wasn't quite clear to him that he was dying. Uh -huh. He was still praying and, and hopeful um, uh, for survival, so I'm not quite sure what that disconnect was. But the, the nurse, I finally went out and, and had to drag someone in and said, this man is in pain. And, you know, they didn't address him they addressed me as the white person standing at the end of a, a, a dying black man's bed um and instead of asking him what he wanted they asked me um and they said you know they kind of whispered to me well the morphine doesn't really work for him um he's having all this breakthrough pain um maybe we should try methadone and i said try it let's right. see if it works and they said well because methadone's a junkie drug. Oh, God. They didn't, they didn't say that, but that's what the connotation was. Like, it's addictive, she said to me. Um, and so <laughs> so methadone has, and I, I said, what? for all to hear, he's dying. Mm -hmm. He's dying. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the addictive properties of methadone no longer matter. Um, and so the, the treatment of pain, right, suffering brings us um, 
salvation is a huge problem. Our historical understanding, how we've addressed pain in the past, um, when we had few tools against it, um, on top of just cultural understanding of who can handle pain and why and whether it's good or not, on top of, you know, the different prejudices against individuals, um, like blacks, um, pain not mattering in a society where young men are killed on the street by cops, Mm, um, you know, to, to, you know, just physical problems where this guy, did not react the way they had wanted to to morphine, which is a fabulous drug. It's a fabulous drug. Oh, yes, um, it is. But it just it didn't work for him. And so they were afraid to try something like methadone, which, you know, is considered a junkie drug. And we're in an all-HIV facility, right? Right, right. You only, you only have to get HIV, you know, from having sex with someone who's positive or using drugs. So all those problems come into play and, and, and they lost sight of the patient. The most important thing is whatever you've got in your toolbox that makes that person comfortable. Yes. That's, that's the ultimate, um, right, need, purpose. We don't talk enough about that part of dying. For me and my dad, it was the difficulty he found leaving his body. And that's, um, that is just the only way that I can put it. And the only way that we could get through it and keep him at home was to be able to have um, all of those drugs with a very uh, clear schedule of how much to use and in increasing doses um, to keep him uh, comfortable enough to leave. None of us could have could have made it, including my yeah. father. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, and there is just such a valuable part of of caring for people at the end of their lives that tends to kind of fly away until you see it up close and personally so mm-hmm. um i don't want to keep you any longer <laughs> <laughs> thanks for talking to me and, and um you know making conversation out of this um these subjects that are so so important at the moment um, where people are dying around us, and we have, um, we have to change um, the systems that allowed this pandemic to be so deadly. Thank, thank thanks, Anne. Anne. Thank you, Take and care. thank you for your work. And um, I'm looking forward to whatever else you're getting up to because I know that you've got all sorts of stuff on the go. Because as you said, death is having its moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, the more people writing and talking about it, the better. And so that's the end of part one. And I agree with Anne. The more people that talk about death and dying, end of life care and health care and death care intertwined, the better. And part two. When, when he's talking about doing deals with states over PPE, it makes me sick. Oh, my God. That's not how it works. He is monetized everything. He's monetized your ass. She's not wrong. So that's for next time. I'm going to be posting links to Anne's recent work as well as her book. And trust me, I know that this crap is heavy, but now it's time to just go watch your favorite puppy video, kitty video, otter video, capybara in a hot tub video, and just let it all hang out.